actors should write, actors should direct, actors should produce. Don't just act. Don't just wait for the phone call. You know, you're an actor. Act. Be proactive. Otherwise, you're reacting. Welcome back to Nothing Shines Like Dirt, episode 72. I'm Elise Sievert. And I'm Leslie Shannon. Today, we are talking to writer and filmmaker Colette Friedman. We discuss her film, Miles Underwater, that just wrapped production. Being a structure queen and... Don't Don't ask ask permission. permission. LA basically... You sit in a rock. It's like you sit down in a rocking chair, and twenty years later, you get up. You know, you're like, "Where? What have I been doing all this time?" <laughs> it's so easy. It's so relaxed. Yeah. You, know, you have your car. You don't have to talk to people. You can't talk to people. It's always it's always seventy degrees and sunny, except for crazy summer. You know, so it's like it's so easy here. I find that I never know what time of year it is. Like mm-hmm. I'm like, I don't know what month it is because I don't have the seasons anymore to clock. The, or someone will be like, "When did that happen?" I'm like, I don't know. Mm-hmm. I I. Have no It's like idea. you're in a casino the whole time and yes. there's no clock. Yes. Yeah. I love these analogies. That's a great analogy. <laughs> yeah, you're like, what time of day is it? Yeah. I don't know. So you have to be a self-starter, you know, which is – and here's the thing too. Like I took acting classes in New York and I love them, but you – you don't have space where you have in California. So it's like, let's rehearse. Wait, where are we rehearsing? There's no space or my apartment's the size of a, you know, molecule. Where here, it's like, you you can not only rehearse, you can put on a play in 8,000 right. different places. Right. So Yeah. How do you, how do you personally self-start? Like, are you, were you, is that just naturally in your DNA? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I yeah. was an athlete. I was an all-American athlete. So I kind of had the discipline when I was a kid. Um, first of all, it was always like acting or sports. And... I knew I only had until I was 22 to play a sport with, you know, 12 other women on the team. Hey, everyone, come here. Let's play lacrosse. You can't do that. So I'm like, all right, I'm going to put the acting on hold and just focus on sports, which I did. And being an athlete gave me such a discipline of, like, you have to be – Training and practice. you have to do your own stuff. Yeah. Because no one else will. Yeah. So – I think people forget that too, like the the daily work that has to go into art. Yes, and there's nothing that annoys me more than and I and look, my friends, my forty year old actor friends are like, oh, my agent hasn't called me. I'm still waiting. No, fuck that. You know, yeah. like you have to do it yourself. Yeah. And then when you do it yourself and the energy's out there, then your agent's going to be calling about other stuff that you're not going to be able to do because you're so busy doing your own stuff. Exactly. So, exactly. Yeah. Do you have you write so much? You write mm-hmm. novels, screenplays, plays, everything. Yeah. Um, yeah. Everything. It was very – I was like, what? Crazy <laughs> town. Again, no, no kids. kids. <laughs> do you have like every day I wake up and like a routine or do you – You know what? I'd love to say that. I'd yeah. love to say like, you know, I was, who was I reading about? Uh, like both Stephen King and um, – was it Eugene O'Neill? It's one of those dead old white guys where it's like, you know, <laughs> I write every day and then, you know, my lunch is brought to me at one o'clock. Well, that's <laughs> nice. I'd like someone to bring me my lunch right. at one o'clock. Um, for me, again, playing sports as a kid, it's I do a boot camp every day from 930 to 1030. So I always wake up and I say that's my smart time. So I wake up, make coffee, walk the dog, and then I get in a solid amount of work, um, probably between 7.30 and 9.30. That's where I personally think the bulk of my good stuff is done. And then I do my workout class, shower, eat, and then I'll do kind of the second tier stuff. I do a lot of work for hire, so stuff I'm not as passionate about, but you just have to, you know, know how to 
put A and B together. And then I'm I'm spent by five o'clock. And I'm not I don't go out, I'm not a party or anything like that. But by five o'clock, like dinner with friends or Netflix or hanging out, but my brain doesn't work at night. I'm too tired. Some writers are like, no, no, put the kids to sleep. My my creative juices start flowing at ten. But I don't I just have deadlines and I know I can always hit a deadline really quickly. So that's a good thing to know about yourself. And yeah. also like when that time of day is mm-hmm. that you're creative. And like, everyone has a different time. Exactly. And it's okay to give yourself permission. It's like I tell I teach a lot and I tell my students, um, I'm a I'm a structure fanatic. I think structure is incredibly important. However, I don't care what structure you use. Find one that works for you. So I'll teach them all the different structures, like of a screenplay, and they're billions out there. They're all basically three act structure, but you approach it from a different way. And um whichever one works for you. Some people love the sequences. Some people love Hero's Journey. That's great. Whatever resonates with you, tell your story that way and mm-hmm. it will be successful. Mm-hmm. And it's about knowing yourself and yeah. what asking, what questions you can ask yourself to get the writing going. Yeah. Which yeah. is true as an actor too. And yeah. I feel like, you know, when I moved out here in my early 20s, I didn't know myself. Who knows herself? I mean, I'm on the other side of it. So you guys, you're not going to know yourself to your 40. So just enjoy life until then. <laughs> oh, but, great. I feel like I already know way too much. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's like, you know, you just figure it out. And that's like as a writer, I I, I didn't start writing professionally till I was 35 because I didn't have anything to say. And then I had so much to say, I couldn't stop saying it. So That's great. What, what made you take that dive into writing at 35? Um, it's funny. Uh, my husband had said um, that he uh, – so when I met him, we joked that I was a Shakespearean actress. I was playing Juliet at 35, which is, you know, just not pretty to look at. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I can barely fit in the costume anymore. And then I was doing – with a kids traveling troupe, which was a great troupe, uh, L.A. troupe. Um, and we did, we were doing Christmas shows and I was, I felt like I was in the sound of music cause I was wearing curtains. It felt like I was wearing like <laughs> Julie Andrews had whipped them down and stitched up something like whimsical that I was wearing. Um, and he came to see me and I don't know, something switched meeting him and he was a, he was a writer and a script doctor and I always knew I was good at it. And then I just was in a theater company and, um, so was, half of it was meeting him and then the other half was I was in a theater company because all actors join theater companies when they move out here. And I was on the reading committee, and I had one of those I can do better moments, which everyone has at some point in their life. And I was reading all the plays for a 10-minute play festival. And I was like, huh, okay. So um, I wrote a play called First to the Egg, which was about a nerdy sperm convincing a self-important egg that he was the one. And I wrote it and because I knew that when you write a play, you know, coming from being in the theater, you know they're only going to produce your play if there's not a lot of set things they have to buy because right. everyone's cheap and, you know, there are a lot of people struggling to make this happen. So I'm like, all right, I need a blank stage. And I just met my soon-to-be husband and I, and, and it was egg and sperm and it was all exciting. And, um, and I wrote it, but I was so nervous to present it as myself. I did it under the pseudonym Naomi Lefkowitz. And it was universally loved. And finally, I was like, copped it. Like, yeah, I'm Colette Friedman. I wrote that. And we did it. And I played, I played the egg. And it did really well. We did it in New York. It went to England. I won um, a diversity contest. And I thought, huh, one little 10-minute play. And look at what the universe is doing. And then I adapted Iphigenia and Alice 
for the same theater company. And then, um, and this was a great, great theater company, but it was mostly plays by dead white men for white men. And, you know, as the women in the company were like, what the fuck? So I wrote a play for me and my friends, and um, it was about four estranged sisters um, reunited for reuniting for their mom's alleged suicide. And we rehearsed it on our own and, and workshopped it, female director, and we put it on. And this little, like, engine that could, this little play, which was only supposed to run for a weekend, ran for six months. And I think it just had its 28th production around the world. It's wow. been translated into a bunch of languages. They did a movie of it. I wrote the novel of it. So it just shows, and I always say this to actors, like, don't just act. Tell the stories that you act in. You all have something to say. So... This little play in a theater company because I wanted to act more and wasn't getting the opportunity. I wrote myself a part, and then loads of people have done these parts over the world. And what's cool is that it's four sisters from um, different dads, same mom. So it's been done the all African American version, the all Latino version, um, mixed. There'll be like ah. one Asian sister, one white sister. It doesn't matter um, because it's about the stories. It doesn't mm -hmm. matter kind of where you're from. Mm -hmm. So. Yeah. That's great. That and is. when were you like, oh, I wrote this play, now I'm going to turn it into a novel? Like, what um, was that process? Well, yeah. Yeah, it was. <laughs> so um, it all kind of like, it's this weird story that I wrote the play, and then I was with a manager who had this amazing writer, um, Michael Scott, who had written all these books and was looking for a collaborator. And I always say to people, write a play or a book, don't write a screenplay when you're trying to get a job because everyone's handing in screenplays, but very few people have plays or books. And so the manager had given him lots of writing samples and gave him my play, Sister Cities, and he's like, oh, I want to write with her. So we started writing novels together. Um, so I was pretty comfortable in that arena, and then the play had been done forever, and it got optioned a bunch of times as a film. It was eventually made into a film with some really nice actors. Um, Jess Weixler played the star, and then Michelle Trachtenberg, who I grew up with on Buffy, and Troy and Belisario from Pretty Little Liars, and um, Stana Kotick, and she has a huge following, and then the grown-ups were Alfred Molina, Kathy Baker, and then my favorite, Jackie Weaver, who's just the most lovely, lovely, lovely actress and is on fire now. She's working all the time. So the movie came out, but there's so much, it, you know, the trouble with films is that most dialogue is cut in exchange for well-begun looks and mournful sighs. And I was like, my dialogue, my dialogue. And most people can't see the play. So I quickly wrote the book. I almost reverse engineered it afterwards wow. and wrote the book so that people knew what the backstory was of, because everyone fell in love with the movie, but it was only, you know, maybe 10% of yeah. what the story was. So I wanted them to have the true story. Oh, that's so cool. Right? Yeah. Go ahead and buy the book. Sister right. Cities by Colette Friedman there on Amazon. Go. Yeah, there you go. do it. You <laughs> know you all have like those e-readers that yeah, you can or do download the play. I, I always say to people, like, I've been to such random places. Someone from like Buffalo, New York called me the other day. They're like, hey, can we do your play? I was like, yeah. You know, and if it's if it works out for me, I'll come out and I'll talk to the audiences and talk to the actors. I My favorite was when I went to, to Napa. They're like, we can't pay you that much, but we'll give you wine. I said, great. Sure, I'm good. They have so, good wine up there, yeah. right? <laughs> it's like they're known for that or something. Just a little Perhaps. bit. Perhaps. Yeah. yeah. I love that it's it can be so diverse, too. Because you think sisters, you think they all have to look the same. No, it's, it's a new a, world. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. I love that. 
I yeah. do too. That is that allows a lot more for for colorblind casting and all sort without having to think about it and and mess with people's suspension of disbelief yep. in that in that way. You said you're a structure queen. Mm-hmm. How did you learn structure? Because you were an act. Like, is it? Do you feel like it was from your years of acting? Did you then dive into books? Did you take a class? What did you do to like get there? I think I got it inadvertently. I was um. So you know, I moved out to be an actor and quickly become a waiter because that's what we do. Mm-hmm. And while I was waiting, I had this amazing dad and daughter team who used to come into my restaurant, and they're like, Colette, you should be a D girl. I was like, what, what's that? I don't want to be a D girl. That sounds awful. But that was development. And I said, no, I'm an actor. I'm only going to work. I'm going to be a very famous actor. And um, he's like, fine, we'll just be a reader because you like to read. And so I did. I became a reader at Showtime for 10 years. So I read thousands of scripts. And I think it just became kind of ingrained in my system how to write a script because you know what works and what doesn't. But I didn't I think until I started teaching screenwriting when you have to be one step ahead of the students, just barely. And so I just, I dove into it and I studied everything I could from, you know, Save the Cat, which is the perfect McDonald's of structure. You know, it's great. I always, people mock it, but it's a great easy read to be like, oh, this should happen on page two, on page 15, on page 30, on page 45. And it's really helped because my writing partner, Brooke Purdy, and I, write a lot of movies for Lifetime. And, you know, knowing structure, it's a formula. Everything's a formula. Not as much for cool indie films, but, you know, the big blockbuster films, you know there's going to be that, you know, point of no return around page 75. And um, on TV, they have the uh, commercial breaks. So you've got to hit all those big suspense moments right before, Mm -hmm. you know, you buy tampons or Tylenol. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Right. How do you think the streaming platforms are changing structure, especially in TV? Yeah. Um, you know what? I, I think the key is just keep writing everything as if it's a script. I had, I wrote my first TV show. Um, I got hired to write it and I was like, ah, how do I do it? How do I do it? Again, the beauty of the internet is you can read 8,000 pilots and figure it out. But um, I think you keep, you tell the story. It all comes down to the story. If you've got a great story, it's very easy to push around structure. I think streaming has only given us more opportunity. I mean, you've got, you have to stand out from the crowd. I'm always on Netflix. Wait, that came out, that came out. And you have to grab someone in the first 10 minutes. Uh, I do a lot of adjudicating for film festivals because I love film festivals. And, you know, you're you're seeing tw- you're getting 20 independent films and what's going to make them stand out. If you don't get them in the first 10 minutes, you're in trouble. It's um, the first big film my team and I did was Quality Problems. And um, when we're working on the script, you know, structure, normal, you know, great storytelling. And then our editors, who are also our producers, Jen Weberly and Jen Prince came in, and there's this amazing scene where Brooke, who co-directed and and starred in it, um, is freaking out because she has cancer, and she jumps on a windshield and starts, you know, flipping off a guy and losing her mind because she just found out she had cancer, and it's all bottled up. And that was kind of more in the second act, and the editors moved it up to the beginning. That film did so well in festivals because I think when people, I mean, it's a beautiful film anyway. Watch it, Quality Problems. Um, it's free on Amazon. And um, But when you see that in the first 10 minutes, you feel, 
you feel Something. for this woman and it's funny. So you're like, oh wait, a comedy about cancer? That's weird. But it's all encapsulated in this moment where she loses her shit on a car and it makes you want to watch more. Mm-hmm. And it, well, I think you hit the nail on the head with making people feel something. Like at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what crazy cool plot you've come up with. If the it's audience isn't, yeah, feeling those emotions, nobody gives a shit. Yeah, and, and like I just saw it, you know, the second, and oh, I was God. bawling at the end. Were and you? It, and it's I don't a, know. Is it scary? I don't know. It's scary. It. It's not as yeah. scary as the first one, but yeah. it's, there's so much heart in it. And, yeah. you know, my heart was hurting. Even my friend wrote the Avengers movie, you know, and I'm bawling. You know, spoiler oh, yeah. alert, people die, but it's been out for a while, so I'm it, not yeah. spoiling anything. <laughs> no, um, well, I mean, that's but, kind of what they know. They yeah. know that that happened. And yeah. I was crying because it had heart. And so, you know, movies like Heart, Hearts Beat Loud, movies, um, it, there's so many beautiful indie films. If it has heart and makes me feel something, those are the kind of stories I want to see, and those are the kind of stories I want to make, and that's the kind of stories we do make because, mm-hmm. you know, you have a choice. When yeah. You wanna, when you make indie films, and you guys as actors know this, you're – and especially when you get into producing it and directing it and writing it, you're not living with it for the 13 days you're on set. You're living it for years and years because you're pimping it, you're crowdfunding it, you're going to film festivals, you're talking about it. Um, you know, Quality Problems came out four years ago, and I'm still talking about it like it came out yesterday. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have to fall in love with your project. And, and so to have a project you fall in love with, it damn well better have a lot of heart and make you feel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because if it doesn't, you don't want to spend that much time with it. That sounds awful. Yeah, right? It's the worst. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, my gosh. That sounds – yeah. Where do you find that heart? Like, do you get inspiration from living your life? Do you – like, are you a person that likes to bounce ideas off of, like, your producing partners and your your writing partner? Where do you, like – how do you, how, what's your process of getting to that the nitty gritty of the heart of the story? I think when you tell a story, it's about what do you want to what are you passionate about? It, I think it all comes down to passion. It it it's very disconcerting to me when I ask a kid, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? I don't care. Be a robber. Be a you know. Be a senator. It's the same thing. Do whatever you want, but care about something. Be passionate about something. And when I tell stories, I tell stories that I can't not tell it's like when they say about being an actor everyone's like don't be an actor unless you can't do anything else I can't do anything other than telling these stories Mm -hmm. so yeah I mean when when Brooke and I are writing a lifetime film and it's you know you know deadly hooker next door kind of thing (laughs) I don't have passion about that yes it it becomes a game and it becomes fun and it's like okay it's monopoly and how many times can I go around the board and and you make it fun so that's the passionate or you know just I love writing with a partner I've collaborated on loads of things because it's just fun writing is such a solitary um experience and you know as actors we're in a room and it's you know, you're watching scenes done and you're working with people behind the scenes. But as a writer, it's you at your computer. So it's really fun having someone else who's living a story with you. Mm-hmm. For do, sure. do you think the fact that you and Brooke, um, as writing partners, you're both playwrights, do you think are that's where you both started? Do you think that that is something that really helped you work together well? I think 100%. I think, uh, you know, playwrights know dialogue and character. And so stories can come from anywhere, but if you don't have authentic, you know, characters, who cares? 
Um, so because we both started, you know, at the heart, it, look, being a playwright, being an actor, it's all about slicing up in a vein and letting people see who you really are. It's scary and it's vulnerable and you can't hide behind the bells and whistles of special effects and green screen. So we're both, we both had the same taste, which makes a big difference. And we both got along really well. You know, again, a writing partner is no assholes allowed because you're living with this. It's it's more intense than a marriage a lot of times because you're you have to be incredibly vulnerable and trusting of the other person, especially if if people are giving you notes. You know, you're not both doing the notes at the same time. You're you're doing a handoff. And when the other person's working, you have to be like okay, I trust you, it's all good. And we have complete trust of each other. Mm -hmm. I've seen so many writing partnerships, like I've seen so many marriages implode and explode because the trust isn't there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you have to also, like you're saying, you're so vulnerable in front of each other. Uh, you have to let your, your ego go, I think, a lot of times, which uh, you have to find the right people to do, it, do that with. Yes, 100%. And it, again, and then making independent films, it's so much beyond the writer, you know, making the independent film. We just shot um, Miles Underwater, which was a coming of age story. And it was it was such a team effort because even though Brooke and I wrote the script, her husband and her kids starred in it. Um, our longtime producing teams, Jen Prince and Jen Weberly, they were on set making it happen. And Jen, it was her directorial feature debut. So it was, I mean, collaboration doesn't get bigger and better than that. Um, and you can have an ego. So like in Quality Problems, I was doing craft services. I was walking the dogs. I was picking the kids up from school. You, everyone does whatever he or she needs to do in order to make it happen. To get it made. And yeah. if you have an attitude or you're better than that, get out. Yeah. You know, go be a lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> so for that particular story, Miles Underwater, um, what – made you decide that that was a story you wanted to tell. I, I have an actual, I, I want to know specifically, I actually am from the South and I was in Mississippi when Katrina hit. Wow. Um, and my mom lived in New Orleans and had come up and picked me up and took me um, to North Mississippi where I'm from, but I was going to school in South Mississippi at the time um, for college. Uh, so I have a very interesting perspective yes. on that and still, you know, I remember it vividly. Um, so I'm curious, what was it that drew you to that story? There were so many things. Um, and this talk about a team effort. So we had to, we applied for the Duplass Brothers grant. Um, and, you know, we we think of ourselves as the female Duplass Brothers without <laughs> money or fame. And, um, and they had a hometown heroes campaign where trying to get filmmaking out of L.A. and New York. So we knew that. Jen Prince was going to direct, and she her hometown is San Antonio, Texas, and she loved Texas. And so we knew, one, we wanted to shoot something in San Antonio. Two, Brooke's son, Max Purdy, who may be one of the best actors I've ever met in my life. And in Quality Problems, he was a baby. He was 10, and he just had to keep em emoting scene after scene, and he had the entire crew, like, flabbergasted at his talent. So we knew we wanted to write a movie for him. And so he was, I think, he's 15 now. He was 13 and a half at the time. And so we had that. We had San Antonio, and we had a movie starring Max Purdy. We knew we had very little money because we were crowdfunding. We had to beg, borrow, and steal. We knew we had locations, a school. That's it. So what are we going to do? We also knew we had a 
new president in office who none of us was a fan of, and we had something to say about that. So um, all of those things combined, we told the story of a kid and his mom who were in Katrina. The dad dies, saving him, and they move to San Antonio because a lot of people moved to San Antonio after Katrina and were immigrants. And so it's a story about a family who's lost and still trying to pick up the pieces and the pain and the PTSD. But it's also, it's a joyful coming of age story. It's one day in the life when something happens and there's a lot of magical realism in it. And it's about inclusion and acceptance. And we shot it entirely on location in San Antonio. And there's a huge water theme, obviously. And there, um, there's magic and love and heart. It's all about heart. And it's, again, starring this great little unknown collective that we have because we're the unknown, unfamous female Duplostine. <laughs> <laughs> Pulling your resources together. Yeah. I love that. I also love the fact of how, and I mean, I think we've talked about this again and again with other filmmakers, um, how important it is to take a look at what resources you have and build things based upon that. Um, it will be a much more satisfying experience for you and for everyone else involved because you know you're not reaching for stuff and you're not losing certain creative integrity by trying to go too big. You're focusing on what you have. I always say that to filmmakers. I'm like, what do you have? Oh, your uncle runs a funeral home? Set something in a funeral home. Your production value, you get 10 times the money for it because otherwise, you know, you're begging, borrowing, stealing and like, oh, a funeral home, let's turn our living room and make a coffin and no, use a real funeral home. And also it's it's not only that, like it's who's on your team with you because it shouldn't be a solo event. It's the writers, it's the producers, it's the director, it's your main actors, everyone who wants to tell this story. Okay, who knows someone? You're a waitress, can we use your restaurant after dark? oh, hey, your house is great and has terrific ceilings. Can we use it for two days? We'll, you know, put you up at a hotel. You, what can you do to get the most bang out of your buck? Mm -hmm. Exactly. Um, what's your favorite thing to write? I, I mean, that's so lame, but like whatever yeah. I'm writing in the moment. Yeah. Because that's, I, I, you have to, it forces you to work in the present. Like I just finished this book um, with Kimberly Much called The Reluctant Fairy Godmother. I had never done a young kid's it book before. It looks super cute. Again, thanks. It, it is. It's really cute. It's about this badass little girl who finds out she's, ooh, a fairy godmother and is not up to the task. Um, so it's uh, it's pretty rad. And so, like, that was so much fun. And now she and I are going around pimping that. So that's... That's my That's favorite project right now. Yeah. And then who knows what the next favorite project will be. I'll have to get be. it for my niece for, yeah. for the holidays. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Yes. That it's sounds calling, amazing. It's coming up. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I can't even think about it. I'm like, it's going to be like tomorrow in like a day. Mm -hmm. It's always how it happens. What was it like? Uh, did you actually work with the Duplass brothers with the grant? How did that process work? So it was a really interesting thing, and they've streamlined it since we were in the initial kind of competition for it. It was... I think 73, I'm, I'm saying it wrong because I'm not good with numbers, but it was, let's pretend it's 73. 73 films um, competed for their grant. And um, I think you had to make videos every week and you had to get a certain amount of followers and um, then they're going to choose their favorite. And the winner, the 
the two winners were the miseducation of Bindi, which looks so good. And, and these these guys were great. They're like, we don't need your money, Duplass Brothers. We just want your name. So the Duplass Brothers are like, here are our co-winners. We're not going to give you the money because you don't need it. We're going to give you our name. And then the other winner was um, a movie called Drought, which is like the younger version of our team. These two kids from somewhere in the Midwest, and they, the Duplass brothers kind of gave them the full thing. Then there were five runners-up, and we were one of the runners-up. So, uh, you know, we got $1,000, the Duplass brothers' name, um, a screening at some place in Texas, some equipment. So, you know, we we tied for second place, <laughs> I guess, yeah. among 73 films, 173 films. I mean, that's great. Films. That's yeah. great. Can, yeah, we, we and a thousand I yeah. love that they're... Five billion films. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I love that they're doing that because they are like the kings of indie film and everything they did in Austin. and They are, and they're giving back, and they're great. And Emily Best, who started Seed and Spark, who I'm such a fan of, and she and I went to the same college a couple thousand years apart but <laughs> but she's a genius and the yes. fact that she started this kind of kickstarter indiegogo for films specifically and she and mark duplass do a lot of podcasts together which are really informative for up-and-coming filmmakers to learn what to do what not to do especially like w- one of the huge things i took away from them is not only social media because i run all, all the social media platforms for our, all of our films because you kind of have to keep always in the current zeitgeist but how important film festivals are. No, film festivals, you know, unless you're at Cannes or Venice or, you know, Toronto, your your film will probably not get bought for $6 billion, but the contacts you make are invaluable. Mm-hmm. And I've had a great time on the film festival circuit, both with Quality Problems and with our transgender love story, and then there was Eve, just meeting different people and hearing their stories and and. Like there, there was a team, um, Elena Weinberg, who we met at Austin Film Festival when we were shooting. She gave us like pup tents and water coolers and stuff just because that, that stuff adds up. Yeah. And so it becomes a filmmaking community yeah. and much bigger than your, you know, nucleus of people. We're also fans of Emily. Yeah. She's great. That's yeah. how I found my nanny actually was from Yeah. <laughs> and oh my God, her kids are beautiful. Right. They're so I cute. I love those Facebook I know. posts. Yeah. They're so cute. They're so cute. How has teaching changed your writing? Because um, I realize how much better my students are than I am. <laughs> <laughs> um, I love it. Because I, they have you guiding yeah, them. There you yes. Go. Yes. Um, teaching has changed my writing because it, I mean, I love teaching so much. I I was always I've always been a script doctor and do punch up and you know you get paid big bucks for that. Teaching is the same version, just without all the zeros at the end of the check. And um, it's I really like helping students navigate through the murky waters of structure and through overwriting and through what sounds authentic and what doesn't. It's it's fun because my students work in their playwrights, their novelists, their screenwriters, their TV writers, their animators. So it's fun for me because I never get bored. I'm always like, oh, you're doing this, you're doing this. And it, I think it's the same kind of thing as when I read those 10,000 scripts for Showtime. Reading all their stuff makes me better because I'm as I'm teaching them, I'm probably subtly incorporating it into my own stuff as well. Absolutely. I mean, that's that would be the smart thing to do, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, we've often talked about how um, 
actors make really great writers because they're so used to being able to tune in to people's voices because they that's part of what you do. Um, did you find that that was something that served you well? A hundred percent. I tell all actors, write. It's time to write. And and it, it bums me out when they do, oh, I can't write. I can't. Everyone can write. We all did it. You know, we all wrote those papers in high school. Um, <laughs> and start small. Like if you're not if you're not comfortable writing, you know, the great American novel or or the the Academy Award winning screenplay, do a short. Um, Doug Purdy, Brooke's husband, who co-directed Quality Problems with her um, and starred in Miles Underwater is just a beautiful actor, like just one of the best actors I've ever met. He um, wrote and is directing his first short that we're going to produce at the end of this year. And it's, it's, again, it's short. It's 15 pages, but the dialogue is great. And I believe the characters. And you can only, you're only a voyeur into a snippet of these people's lives that you see on screen. But because he's an actor and understands, you know, the gamut of emotions, he's incorporated that into his characters. So, um, yes, actors should write. Actors should direct. Actors should produce. Don't just act. Don't just wait for the phone call. You know, you're an actor. Act. Be proactive. Otherwise, mm-hmm. you're reacting. Mm-hmm. And that's, hey, that's really smart. Remember that. Yeah. <laughs> do you want me to record that for yeah. you? Yeah, you probably okay. should. All right, I will. We should do a podcast. Yeah. I know, right? We totally. Brilliant it's words by Colette Freeman. It's all right. When it comes out, you can just like write down that snippet and yeah. just use it always. Right. I'm going to really quote good. myself. That's not problematic or arrogant. No. Yeah. Not, no. not at all. So no. um, you have your new, the, the book that you're touring right now, but what else are you working, like what else is in your pocket right now that you're excited about? Um, Brooke and I are working on a screenplay for our team to do next summer because, you know, if we don't do uh, – if we aren't completely broke and figuring out what our next screenplay is, we're not metamorphic <laughs> productions. That's that's our MO. That's what we do. Um, so I'm doing that. I haven't written a play for a while, and because I teach a playwriting class, I, you know, I don't want to be hypocritical. So um, Sister Cities I sat on for a long time. I knew I had the idea of a mom asking her daughter to kill her. But I didn't know how I was going to tell it. And then I basically vomited out one weekend. So I have a couple stories that I've been sitting on for a while. And I'm just kind of waiting for the weekend to vomit it out. And then I always tell people, bake the cake. It should not take you long. Whatever you need to write, just write it. Write it in a day. Write it in a week. Nothing should take longer than three weeks the time should be frosting the cake. So get it out of your system. It doesn't matter how messy and awkward. No one ever reads a first draft anyway. Then you get the delicious task, which is actually so much fun of going and doing the nerdy wordsmithing thing and cutting scenes and bumping up characters who were just secondary or incidental characters and making them you know, more mainstream, taking your main character who you're like, yeah, they're a dick and dropping them and just having fun, but get it out there first. So I have a couple of those, you know, weekends coming up. That's exciting. It's yeah. exciting. We want to when I, we want to know about them okay. when they happen. Just, <laughs> you can just randomly send us an email and be like, it happened. Yeah, I do. I'm such a, I'm such a, since Instagram came out and, um, Facebook. I mean, it, I, I swear I use Facebook to tell my parents what I'm doing. And so, <laughs> oh, what's Colette doing today? And it's not, you know, like, oh, she didn't have made an anchovy pizza, although I do post that. But it really is what project I'm working on. Because it's if you can't promote yourself, no one else is going to do it for you. I found that out. You know, people always ask me about self-publishing versus traditional publishing. Now, I've had 
10 books in the world. I think seven of them were traditionally published. And that's great for the ego. It feels so good to say, yes, Penguin, you know, published my book. Or, <laughs> yes, I'm, I'm, I'm in Random House's library. Or yes, I'm one of Kensington's to watch. But the reality is, and I'm sorry for any publisher who's listening to this, they are not going to spend the time to promote you. So if you want your book promoted, you have to hire a publicist. You've got to get the word out. You have to do your own legwork. So then why not self-publish since you're going to do, do that get work more anyway? Money mm-hmm. that way. Yeah. 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 So – that's currently what I'm like, wait, why isn't – I mean, granted, uh, you know, uh, Kardashian or Stephen King can get a deal anywhere. But everyone in between, it's a struggle. Mm-hmm. And you have to do the legwork. So whether you're doing an indie film or a play and trying to get butts in the seats or trying to sell your book, you have to, you have to spread the word. You know, I mean, it goes the same with distribution because uh, we've been oh, talking absolutely. about self-distribution versus, you know, getting a distributor company. It's the same thing. It's, yep. They take a lot of money, but they are not doing the legwork of getting it out there. And I think a lot of times people are like, I just want someone else to do it. I don't want to do it. And then when they're not doing it, it's frustrating. Mm-hmm. And it's like you got because yeah. you don't have the control over it then to. Yeah, but I think I think she's right. You're doing it no matter what. Right. You're, so you're, why not? Yeah. 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 Right. Yeah. Absolutely. I think that's a great way to think about it. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's so right. <laughs> There's. I mean, we we've talked about this before too. Like as actors nowadays, sometimes too, they won't cast certain actors and things depending on what kind of project it is. Um, if you don't have a big enough following mm-hmm. on Twitter, on, if you, if on you social don't have, media, yep. in yeah. some way, shape, or form. Um, which, you know, kind of sucks. But then from a producer standpoint, I get it. <laughs> like it makes right, sense. But it does suck. But here's the thing. If you're doing your own project and casting yourself in it, you don't care if you have like a thousand Twitter followers or 10,000 Twitter followers because you're going to get to act right. and, and be the face of your film. And then your film's going to have a Twitter account. And you never know when something's going to go viral. Look, Quality Problems we did four years ago. Everyone keeps getting cancer. So it's not a matter of like making a dollar, making $10 or whatever, four cents, everyone watches it on Amazon. It's when a new person gets cancer and they're losing their shit and kind of want to escape for a while. And there's someone who has perhaps heard this podcast and is like, hey, there's a comedy about cancer. You're going through it. Sit down and watch it. And they sit down and watch it. And maybe it makes them laugh for two hours or makes them think like, oh, yeah. This is a quality, everything else is a quality problem. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just gives you perspective. Then we've done our job. So I don't care how many Twitter followers people in that cast have. It's a great story. So mm-hmm. that will resonate for years and years to come. So is that, sure, producers hire people with Twitter followers, but that's why you make your own stuff and then it doesn't matter. Yeah. That's our jam here. Make yeah. your own stuff. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's literally what the entire podcast is about. Like, get off your ass and make your own stuff. Yeah. And here's what it comes down to. It, it comes down to talent and, you know, a great story. It really comes down to either a rich uncle or a rich dentist. It comes down to money. So how are you going to get the money? Seed and Spark has been great. We will continue. I hate asking people for money unless it's one of my projects because then I love my project so much. I'm like, give me a dollar. Give me $10,000. I love it. Miles Underwater. We need money. Come join. Be an associate producer. I don't care. We need money. It would be a lot easier if my uncle were rich. It would be a lot easier <laughs> if, you know, my dentist wasn't 22. So... <laughs> 
<laughs> pay attention to your dentist and pay attention to your uncle because one of them is rich. And when you say, listen, I'm shooting a short. I need 30 grand. It's a great investment that you will never, ever get back. But you're going to help me as an artist. You never know. What's the worst I can say? No. Or I only have 5000 great, great. I'll take it. Right. Right. Yeah, Don't be helps. afraid to ask people for money. Yeah. It's a hard – I think it's a really hard thing for people to get over of mm-hmm. that, like asking for help, asking for money. But again, just like you said, um, the worst they can do is say no. Yep. Like that's literally the worst thing that can happen. But I always think too, like if I had that money, I'd be like, sure, here, I want to help you. You know, like if you – if you, That's why we're all broke because right? we would do that. Yeah, <laughs> <You> exactly. <laughs> but here's the thing, and this is why I think training as an actor is one of the best training you can have. Because I was rejected so much – as an actor, when I get rejected as a writer, it's like, what's the expression? Water off a duck's back, you know? Same kind of thing, asking for money. All right, whatever, so don't give it to me. Again, it hurts so much when you're an actor and you get the rejection because you want it so badly that you become tougher and tougher. And and soon you're Teflon. You're like, yeah, whatever. I don't (laughs) want it anyway. So... Yeah, you learn to leave it. Mm -hmm. You do it and you leave it. Well, where can people find you online on... www.colettefriedman.com. I just here's the other thing I always tell people: brand your name, brand your name. Go out and do it. Everyone has these funny, funky names on on social media. Put your name out there because that's how you're branding yourself. On Twitter, on Instagram, I'm Colette Friedman. Same kind of thing, like uh, Miles Underwater, Quality Problems, and then the Receive, the Reluctant Fairy Godmother. Every single thing I've done has always had you know, its own social media handle. Because in in today's world, people, it's not like the old days when it's a three scotch lunch and hand business cards. Now it's like, hand me your phone, I'll tap my number in. Or what's your Facebook account? Let's become friends. It's so much easier to communicate. You know, Mm -hmm. it's a blessing and a curse. I actually love the blessing of social media because I find it so easy to self-promote and and like get so many more people interested in your project that Mm -hmm. way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, what speaking of, what are your handles? It's just Colette Friedman on everything. Just Colette Friedman, C O L E T T E, F as in Frank, R E E D M A N. So yeah, Amazing. I have lots of smart things to say if you follow me. <laughs> and then Metamorphic is the company, um, our kind of badass all female company. Um, we hope to have more of that. Those ladies yeah, right. On too. It, it's, yeah. it's changing yeah. the face of yeah. this industry, and I think it is changing. I think we really are. You know, we we've what's the expression we've gone over the other side and it's just it's slow but but I feel like the face of the industry is changing more of us just have to keep doing this and staying with it yeah and supporting each other as we go through it it's so ultimate like coming from a place where we're holding each other's hands and lifting each other up through the process because that's what's going to happen and that's the reason why you know white men have had that place Mm -hmm. for so long it's been a boys club yeah exactly because they see another young white man and they're like oh let me help you and they pull each other up so we need to do the same thing yep and I always say that when crewing up when you are crewing up hire women it's everyone's going to be equally qualified so hire a woman it's the only way you know the face of this industry can change Absolutely. And people, when they work together, then they then you don't even know what kind of crew you put together that they will then go work and do other things. I love that too. When I'm like, oh, my uh, DP and my sound guy just did another project or gal yep. or whatever, you know, like so you have to hire people to work together. And my last three DPs have all been women. That's great. and it makes love a that. difference. Yeah. It's it's a different kind of eye. And talk about heart, you know. Women naturally have heart, so it's it's already embedded into the look of the film. Yeah. 
Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for taking time and sitting. You have so, I have no idea how we're going to choose a quote from this episode. I'm like, there's so many good quotes. We always put a quote on with your episode. No, do the one that that I thought was brilliant after I said it. Okay. All right. Well, you guys, that's what's going to (laughs) happen. Recommendation. But thank you so much for taking time. This is going to be so helpful for so many people. My pleasure. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you guys for listening. Thanks, guys. Bye.